love your work. On this show, we meet people who have carved out success by their own definition. I'm David Cadavy, best-selling author and entrepreneur. I want to start off by thanking those of you who have rated the show on iTunes lately. A couple of weeks ago, we were at 53 reviews. We're currently at 62 reviews. I don't know what has prompted some of you to review. Uh, maybe you felt sorry for me for merely having a couple thousand downloads per episode. But in any case, thank you to Turn It Out 920, Deep Schwag, Troy Anito, Ryan Recker, and Unit Awesome for your reviews. We did break the 50,000 download mark with that 20th episode, so thank you for sharing your favorite episodes on social media, upvote-powered news aggregators such as Designer News and Reddit, or simply by telling your friends. That helps quite a bit. Do you have a question you'd like to ask me? Quora recently invited me to do a Quora session, which is quite an honor, I have to say. It will be from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. PST, on April 20th, 2016. I'm currently suggesting you ask me questions about solopreneurship, productivity, design, marketing, and travel, but I'm sure you can ask me anything, so whatever you'd like to know, go ahead and ask. Follow me at cadavy.net slash Quora so you don't miss it, and I believe questions are going to open up well ahead of the actual session, so you'll probably get a chance to ask in advance. On this episode, I asked the question, is Silicon Valley leading us into the robot apocalypse? I've been kicking around questions regarding digital distraction for the past few months, researching and independently writing to try to understand it better, and I talked briefly with Nir Eyal about it. Nir is the author of Hooked, How to Build Hammock-Forming Products, so he's really manufacturing the drug here. Fortunately, he's also concerned about the implications of digital distraction, So he agreed to have a discussion with me about it on the podcast. In this discussion, we cover our views on the potential effects of distraction. Is it making people less creative? Is it as addictive and harmful as smoking? Do we have the agency to free ourselves from technology? And of course, is it making us vulnerable to a potential robot apocalypse? You're going to find that Nir and I agree in some areas and that we disagree in some others. Listening to it, I really wish I would have pushed back on him a bit harder, and I'll comment on some of that later uh, after the discussion. So what do you think? When you're done listening, let us know in the comments. Go to cadavy.net slash podcast to find the show notes, and let's extend the discussion there. This episode is brought to you by Treehouse. Take your career to the next level and learn from over 1,000 videos created by expert teachers on web design, coding, business, and much more. Claim your free 14-day free trial at cadavy.net slash treehouse. You'll be supporting the show. I am here with Nir Eyal, who is author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. First of all, Nir, thanks a lot for coming to the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And so this is going to be a little bit different from my usual show in that usually I do an interview and you and I had a conversation and kind of found that we had overlapping interest and concern and possibly some areas that we might disagree on. And uh, so we decided to schedule this conversation to 
to talk about the idea of digital distraction and the way it can affect uh, individuals or how it, it might affect society. And um, I don't know how long this conversation is going to be. It, it, it might be half an hour. It might be an hour. It, it might, we might have multiple conversations. But I think there might be a fair amount to be uh, talked about here. And, and I think, so the title of this conversation is a little alarmist. It is, is Silicon Valley leading us into the robot apocalypse? And you can blame me for that alarmist uh, <laughs> title, but uh, it, it's kind of appropriate since we were talking about uh, distracting people. Uh, and it, it might sound a little bit uh, extreme, but there, there, there could potentially be some, some truth there. So I think we can start off. Uh, introducing ourselves and what our backgrounds are and where our interest lies in, on this topic. Uh, and you can go ahead and go first and feel sure. free to take as much time as you want, Nir. Yeah, so I, I, uh, I'll keep it brief. So I published a, a book that you mentioned, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And uh, the, the book has had a pretty warm reception in the, in the product development community here in Silicon Valley, where I live. And um, it's it's the the book I wrote the book for two reasons. The, the the first reason is that I really do believe that we can use consumer psychology uh, and behavioral design to help people live better lives. That I think that we can use uh, this deeper psychology of how these products change our behaviors to help them live better, to help them live more connected, richer, more fulfilling lives uh, through better technology. That's the first reason. So I want people to help. I want to help people build healthy habits in their users' lives. The second reason I wrote the book is that, um, it, the, and the book is a bit of a Trojan horse in this respect, that uh, reading the book, I think people realize that, wait a minute, actually, uh, these products are doing this to me, right? These products are changing my behavior in a way that is partially uh, my responsibility. And we can talk about more about you know, how personal responsibility plays in but is also by design. It is not by happenstance that these products are so compelling. It is, in fact, by design. And, and I think that's a rather good thing. But of course, I think with, with every new technological revolution, there, there are some deleterious effects as well. And so that's kind of where we can, my interest lies here is that, um, you know, I, I, I am very cognizant of the fact that with every great technological leap, uh, there are goods and there are bads. And I think we're starting to reckon with some of the bads now. Yeah, I agree with you about uh, every technological leap having its goods and bads. I don't think that, uh, just before I even get into introducing myself, maybe this is part of my introduction. Uh, I'm definitely not a, a, a Luddite. I don't, I, I think that technology is this force that you kind of can't, can't stop. Um, I do think that it, it might be time for the pendulum to swing back in the other direction, uh, which we can talk about. I worked as a, as a designer in Silicon Valley um, for a few years. And then I actually, I just actually kind of got disillusioned with the whole, uh, experience. I felt a lot of pressure to, to, to distract people or to hijack people's in, uh, intentions. And I ended up leaving Silicon Valley and, uh, eventually wrote a, the book Design for Hackers, in, in which case I could kind of separate myself from the, the ethical concerns of it and instead just teach people what I know. Um, and I also believe very strongly that we have technology, very, technology is very powerful. We have all of this behavioral science knowledge. We have an opportunity to really 
make people's lives better. Um, however, I think that there's some eth- that the economics of that are a little bit problematic, and and we'll talk about that. I think as well. So that's a bit about me. I, I guess we can explore. How about if we start off exploring what the potential effects of digital distraction are, like for individuals or for societies? Um, do you have an overarching view about that? Yeah, I think um, you know. I, I think that that it's very uh, it's a very new dilemma uh, that we're facing. In that um, boredom has been something that has plagued our our species forever, right? That the that a, a, a problem that the human species has had for you know well over two hundred thousand years now is what do we do with our time? What do we do with our our our, our idle brains? Um, and so now we are in an age where all of a sudden we have this surplus of of things that try and distract us. And I think I think we should pause and maybe reflect on the fact that that's actually a great thing, right? That, that the access to information, uh, our access to each other has never been, um, m- has never been so, so common, has never been so easy. And that we, it's really a first world problem that we have today when we say, oh, our technology is so distracting and woe is me. These people are making products that are so good that we want to use them all the time. And by the way, they're free, right? <laughs> Nobody's charging you a dime for us to connect right now, you're in Colombia and I'm in San Francisco, and this mm-hmm. costs us nothing to talk. I mean, let's just stop for a second and realize the miracle of the age we live in right now that these products are available to us. Um, so I think, you know, overwhelmingly, these things are amazingly good. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, like you, I'm, I'm no Luddite. I love these products, and I, I do not want to go back to an age before these things existed. Um, but I think that they're, along with it, there are certainly. Uh, costs. And so we're not paying with our money. We are paying with attention, right? That, that, uh, that's, there's a reason we call it paying attention. There is a cost to our, uh, our, our cognitive bandwidth. That being said, I, I, I think that the, uh, the human species is an incredibly adaptable species. We're the only species that can ad- uh, evolve in real time, right? Uh, other animals have to take millennia to evolve more fur, but when we go to a climate that's cold, we just put on a jacket. And so we can, we can evolve in ways that uh, other animals can't. And I think that applies as well to our, our capacity to evolve uh, to our environment as technology changes. So overall, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the future. But that being said, whenever there's a technological revolution, and whether it's the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, uh, there are always negative consequences, right? The, the, uh, and we can talk more about that as well. But, you know, there, there's some pretty obvious repercussions uh, with what we today would consider, you know, fundamental aspects of our lives, right? The, the agricultural revolution allowed the, 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 uh, uh, the human species to, to explode in terms of population growth. The industrial revolution, nobody wants to go back to the time before, mecha, uh, before you know, industrialization. Uh, and yet, you know, these things have had massive impacts, uh, negative impacts as well on our, on our society and on our, on our culture. So, uh, but, you know, there's a, there, that's in proportion a very small part of all the benefits that these technologies have brought. So what I think we have to do in the next few years here is to figure out where technology belongs and where it doesn't belong. And I think we're just starting to have that conversation. So I like the criticism. I, I think it's very healthy and natural that we are 
saying, hey, you know what, maybe we shouldn't use our cell phones all the time in every place. What are the contexts where uh, these technologies don't belong, where they don't serve us? And then dial that, that back, aided by, ironically enough, more technology, right? Mm. The, the solution to the problems of the Industrial Revolution, uh, the problems were, of course, you know, now we have global warming as a result of the Industrial Revolution. The solution for that is not, hey, everybody stop using these technologies. The solution is more technology, right? It's the same technology that are, is going to give us solar panels and wind power and, and other alternative energy sources. That's what I'm looking for uh, from, from, you know, the, when it comes to these technological revolutions in terms of the information uh, revolution. We need new technologies to help guard and protect our, uh, our time, our attention, uh, and these social norms that, that we want to uh, protect. Yeah, and definitely we have to, as you did in the beginning there, uh, acknowledge the irony of, of talking about any potential negative effects of technology while we are um, <laughs> video chatting from, from different continents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what you mentioned about the Industrial Revolution, I think, is a, is a big parallel because I'm seeing, and this isn't a new idea, but of attention being the scarce resource, um, and not even just attention being a scarce resource, but creativity being mm. a scarce resource. That uh, I, I, in the conversation we had earlier, I, I mentioned a, a paper, I've mentioned a number of times on the podcast of about the creativity crisis. There's a researcher named Kyung Hee Kim, and she has a standardized uh, creativity test that she's been, that has been around for a while. And she says, over the last 20 years, children have become less emotionally expressive, less energetic, less talkative and verbally expressive, less humorous, less imaginative, less unconventional, less lively and passionate, less perceptive, less apt to connect seemingly irrelevant things, less synthesizing and less likely to see things from a different angle. Now, we can't necessarily say for sure, okay, that is technology, but one can can certainly realistically imagine how um, constantly interrupting yourself with, uh, interrupting your own thoughts with uh, Facebook or social media or, or any of these technologies that are so ubiquitous, how that might interfere with focus, interfere with insight. And to me, this is where this idea of the robot apocalypse comes in, is that Mm. we, I don't know a great deal about this, but I definitely hear a lot about the the, the coming singularity, that we will eventually have general artificial intelligence that can make, that can, that meets humans in terms of computing power and then can create more AI and that just keeps on going and going until, I mean, we basically make thousands of years, it can do, can, can do thousands of years of human thought within a week or something like that. Mm-hmm. And will that leave humans vulnerable? Will there be any use for us at that time? That's the, the more alarmist uh, viewpoint of it. So um, and the way that that ties into digital distraction for me is uh, is that if creativity is declining, if we, if the thing that makes humans currently different from machines, that the ability to think creatively, the ability to connect disparate elements, if that is a resource that that gets mined away, uh, 
that we might not be very well equipped to to see the potential consequences of things such as that. Just as one example, there are other examples of increasingly complex global interconnected systems that uh, need human ingenuity to contemplate the uh, implications of. So that is probably the. I mean, that's again, it's a it's a little alarmist, but that's the extreme view of the way that I'm thinking about about it. And the the thing that's tough, I think, is the economics of the whole thing. Is that in order for you were you were mentioning that products are free and you have to pay for them with your attention, and people are viewing it that way. And I don't. I'm hoping that people will wise up eventually. And start wanting to to pay for some of these things that that are currently free. Like this is extreme, but imagine if you paid for Facebook. Would how would Facebook be designed differently if people were paying for it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, and, I think that, I think you're covering a, a whole bunch of topics here. And I, I want to say first of all, I, you know, I think technological change is dangerous when it happens faster than we can adapt to it. And I don't think those type of technological uh, reckonings occur very often. Um, I think uh, that that happens very, very rarely. And I, I do think, I'm no expert when it comes to uh, AI, but I think that um, from, you know, from what I've read from people like Stephen Hawkins and uh, uh, you know, from Elon Musk, who, who have studied this topic much more than I have, there is a potential threat of uh, a general artificial intelligence who knows i, I don't i'm not smart enough to to to, to know how close we are to a, a, a general artificial intelligence but yeah there there is a scenario where uh you know the the artificial intelligence goes haywire i just have no clue how probable that that is my focus is really around um i think these much more uh benign types of technology like facebook Right, like our email, like uh, all this great technology that we use, but perhaps we use too much. And I think you know that I'm pretty. I have a pretty good grip on. I I don't think it's um, as bad as I think some some pundits say. I think it's very easy to to stir up an audience. And I think Nicholas Carr uh, has done a, an amazing job with uh, with the shallows around. You know, Google is making us dumb and browsing the internet is melting our brains and people are less creative than they ever were were, were before. I, I don't buy it. I think that there's a lot of stuff, you know, we all know the first rule of, of good research is that uh, cause uh, that correlation does not prove causation. And I think that it's, it's kind of ridiculous to put uh, the blame of, of, of these kind of studies that show that our attention span is the span of a, of a goldfish. I mean, these studies are just so poorly conducted when you dig through what actually was done in these studies. There's a lot of confabulation going on, and, and I, I just don't buy it. Um, I mean, uh, go to YouTube and uh, tell me if the human species is more or less creative than it was 30, 40 years ago. There's a lot of crap, and every time that people create stuff doesn't mean that you have to like all of it, but the explosion in human creativity is unprecedented. I mean, there's more content being created. Again, doesn't mean you have to like it all, right? This isn't a value judgment of what you think is interesting versus what somebody else thinks is interesting. What is amazing and creative to one person is a waste of time to another. That's not what we're talking about. The point is, when it comes to creation, it's never been easier to create and to share uh, than it is today. And so it's a little ridiculous to to, to call the world uh, because to say the world is becoming a little is becoming less creative. I think quite the opposite. 
uh, you know, people are, are more well-connected today than ever before. And people are, uh, I think their well-being is improving uh, in pretty dramatic ways that is not quantified in, in the economy. I mean, you can't necessarily quantify the economic value of being able to connect uh, with, with another human being. For example, you know, I invested in a company called Seven Cups. And Seven Cups was started by a, a psychotherapist, uh, Glenn Moriarty, who in his practice found that a lot of people who needed therapy weren't getting it because psychotherapy is very expensive. It's difficult. There's a social stigma around it. So he puts together this app that uh, with the touch of a button for free, you can be connected with uh, another human being who is ready to listen to you when you're in need. So parents uh, who have a, a child with a disability, a veteran who has PTSD, for no money, and a touch of a button is connected uh, to a person and, and, and receives therapy. Uh, that doesn't have any economic value, uh, but it has tremendous social value. Uh, and I think that, that it's, that's just one example of you know, countless examples of how these technologies are uh, improving our lives. So there's no doubt in my mind, I mean, I think that's an easy, easily won argument that these, uh, these technologies are benefiting us. I think the, the, the interesting argument here is on the margins. Uh, in what ways are they hurting us? In what ways can we get control of these technologies to put them in their place, as, as Sherry Turkle says? Uh, and I, I don't think that using technology in every circumstance is the right thing. And I think we're just now starting to figure out where technology belongs and where it doesn't belong. I, so I, I'm, I'm wondering about the, the creativity thing, though. I mean, I think that to use YouTube as the example of of creativity, I mean it's it it's it's one example, and it it counters this research. And I know that you haven't seen the research, so it's it's hard for you to comment on it. And I actually haven't gone through the you know the, the rigors of, to, through it rigorously or under understood, and I don't have the background to understand those. Does uh, she say it's because of technology? She doesn't say it's because of technology. This she is doesn't. my. Well, I, I, I believe I she. It's... I believe she mentions, and and uh, hopefully this isn't getting boring for people because neither of us uh, have total rigor over it. But um, it, it's definitely like a culprit. Uh, it's a culprit, according to uh, John Cunios, a, a neuroscientist that I uh, interviewed recently. But it's it's a a, a culprit. I think that that's something that you, I think, you probably know, have issues with. There's another trend that's been happening over the past 20 years that I think we could lay blame just as easily. Uh, and I, I, there's been uh, a good deal of research done as well that, you know, standardized testing is another trend, just like technology has been on the rise. Standardized testing has been on the rise for the past 20 years. This is why I homeschool my child, because I think that, you know, when we look at... She definitely work, mentions that, yes. Right. Yes. I think that there's a great play... <laughs> Talk about, I mean, think about it. standardized testing. It's standardized is what mm -hmm. we want from our children. And so, of course, that's going to lead to a, a, less, uh, a less creative populace. And especially when it comes to, uh, you know, our, I think in America, it's done pretty poorly. I think in other countries, it's even worse where the whole, you know, the whole system of how you get a job is all around these ridiculous mm -hmm. standardized tests, which pigeonhole people into uh, buckets based on how well they can take these tests, which I think don't breed creativity and aren't serving us. So I think there's a, a lot of possible culprits. And we have to remember, by the way, you know, institutionalized education is itself a technology, right? So right. We, we need to zoom out a bit here. It's not just the technology that, oh, we see on our cell phones. That's one form of technology has negative repercussions. But there's all these other technologies that we take for granted, right? The food we eat, 
the way we work, our ins all our institutions are also a Language. form of technology. Language. Yeah. And these all, all these things are, in the span of human history, all occurred in the blink of an eye. Right. I mean, I mean, uh, the agricultural revolution only occurred, what, 10,000 years ago. Did we start uh, domesticating plant species and animal species compared to a 200,000 year old species? So all of these changes have occurred very, very quickly. And we're still trying to figure out which ones are, are you know, what aspects and how much of these uh, technologies serve us versus hurt us. Right. Um, just to dig into the creativity a little bit and present some of the reasons that s support why I still believe that it's a, a, you know, technology is a decent culprit, would just be that to take the research of John Cunos, who was a, a previous guest in the show, who studies insight, uh, solving a problem with insight as a dis neurologically distinct thing from solving a, a, a problem with analysis. And they've learned several things, such as that Having in an, in an environment, being in an environment where there's stimulus, being in an environment where there's not stimulus, where say your eyes are closed or you're even a little sleepy, these things encourage insight. Being a, a neuro neurologically distinct right. thing. So for he himself, I know he he rides the train in the morning and puts on sunglasses and puts on noise canceling headphones with just no sound and to have that that quiet time and that contemplation. Now. I don't think that it's I don't think it's a stretch to think that there are a very high percentage and even higher percentage of people today who are having less of that quiet contemplation time. Right. But why is that previously. why is that technology's fault? Is does, does it matter if it's technology's fault? Isn't that the key question? Because if it's not technology's fault, it's the fault of the individual, which is where I put most of the blame. Okay. Uh, I would rather live We're in a world somewhere here. Right. I would, I would rather live in the world like this researcher who says, look, this technology is great, but I choose to stop using that technology so I can think deeply. It's a right. choice. <laughs> I love chocolate cake. I would love to eat chocolate cake every single day, but eating it every day has some negative consequences. Okay. I think that we're getting to the root of where we might see things differently here is that uh, now, yes, it, it is. It is. People are supposedly choosing and, and such. And I, I'm I feel I'm a person who I think I have pretty decent self-control, but when you look at things like junk food and obesity or the, this, the problems that we've had with smoking over the last hundred years, which we've done a great job in combating, um, there's at least some element of, okay, well, yeah, these are choices, but it's, it's hard to make certain choices. There are biases, there are ways to hack human behavior. Mm -hmm. Such as you know, I wrote the book the, on it. <laughs> the, yeah, right. The, the gamblers. That's that's that, that that's what why it's so great to be talking to you. Uh, the, the gambler's fallacy being a perfect one is you walk into a a a casino and uh, to most people it looks like oh yeah I've got a chance of winning this but when you really do the math you don't. Is it the the human brain has these these shortcomings? Right. And they can be hacked. And in the case of gambling, it's heavily regulated and et cetera, et cetera. Now, I don't want to propose that we regulate everything. I am not uh, a proponent of the, of the nanny state or something. But I do think that awareness and, and attitudes can go a really long way in at least getting people to be mindful about these things. Yeah. Um, you know, it, perfect case with smoking. Yeah, there's been a lot of regulation. There's lots of taxes and things like that. But also, there's just sea change in 
in people's views about it. Yeah, that, I think we, we yeah. absolutely agree that uh, we want to increase awareness about the negative sides of these technologies. And in fact, you know, if you look at my writing, uh, 50% of my writing is about how to build healthy habits with the products we use. And then half my writing is about how to break these unhealthy habits. So I feel very strongly about uh, understanding the repercussions of using these technologies. And I want social norms to change. I mean, I, I, I just wrote a piece about uh, how to get people off their phones in a social setting. I mean, it drives me nuts. I go to dinner with, uh, mm -hmm. with friends and we've got five or six people on the around the table and somebody thinks it's a good time to check their phones. It drives me nuts. And so the reason it's happening uh, is because we've just adopted all this stuff wholesale without asking ourselves, hey, where does this stuff not belong? Where should we not use our technology? Another great example is in the boardroom. I get called into these expensive consulting sessions where they pay for my time and I'm there trying mm. to help them. And somebody, usually the boss, somebody who's getting paid the most money to be <laughs> in the room is on their device. It drives me crazy. And so, you know, I clearly see uh, where there are times when we should not be on these devices. But the answer to that is the same thing that got us to stop smoking, which is changing social norms, right? When people mm -hmm. realize, wait a minute, there's this cause and effect here. Using this product is harming folks. They started making those behaviors more difficult, partially through regulation, right? But mostly through social norms that it became, you know, in the span of just one generation, smoking was something that was fashionable and done by the elites and, and something that was, you know, high class to something that, you know, today in America, kind of something degenerates do, right? Smokers, you don't know already, like how dumb do you have to be to not know how bad smoking is? Everyone knows how smoke, bad smoking yeah. is. And now so that's feel, happening. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, so go so ahead. I think that's happening now with technology. I think now, you know, when I see some jerk at the table using their device, when we've all planned to be there, yeah. I call them out, and I want more people to call them out. So it's not that I think, yes, technology all the time in every circumstance. There are places where technology does not belong. It doesn't belong in the boardroom. It doesn't belong in, when we're in social gatherings in the real world. It doesn't belong when we're trying to concentrate. But again, you know, I want to live in a world where we have the choice to put on those headphones and dark glasses so that we can think, so that we can concentrate. It's essential. Um, but I don't think it's technology's fault. There is an element of societal responsibility and personal responsibility, except for one class of people. There are people who, are, who meet a psychographic profile for addiction, real addiction, mm -hmm. uh, and people get addicted to all sorts of things. If you've seen the television show Intervention, right? People get addicted to uh, huffing gasoline. It doesn't mean it's the gasoline maker's fault. It means that they have, you know, they have a, a psychological issue. Uh, usually around some kind of deep-seated pain. For those folks, I think they are a protected class. These are people who have no choice, who are not in control of their behavior. Just like we protect children, we owe them uh, to, to assist them. So uh, I think certain industries have a reckoning coming. Uh, people in the gambling space, for example, uh, people in the, the, the online gaming space, uh, these companies rely upon addicts. They don't rely on you that goes to Las Vegas, you know, once every few years for a bachelor party. They frankly don't care about you. They care about the people who are there all day, every day, uh, gambling away their, their pension. That's who they depend upon. And I, I think that's abhorrent. I think we need to do more to, to help people who are addicted. But the beauty of it is, what's different is that, you know, addiction has been around for a very, very long time. But until now, companies could throw up their hands and say, well, we don't know, right? If you're an alcohol distiller, I don't know, who's the you know who, who are the alcoholics. That, that's their problem. How do I know who's consuming too much of my product? The beauty of the age we live in 
is that all this data that's being collected, the upside of all this data about us is that if these companies wanted to do something about these, these people who abuse their products, they could. And so I think companies are going to, going to have to start reconciling. You know, you knew this person was addicted. Why didn't you do something about it? And, and I've written about this previously. I think companies should adopt what I call a use and abuse policy to identify those addicted, uh, addicted parties that I think deserve a protective status. But for everybody else, right, for the yous and me's and people who, hey, you know, sometimes it's fun to kind of binge on Netflix or, or Facebook, uh, I don't think it's a problem. I think it's a personal responsibility issue. Um, I'm trying to think, I'm thinking about my own personal experience with uh, using Facebook when I really didn't want to be using Facebook. It became um, enough of an issue where, yeah, I, I be, might be sitting there scanning through the news feed, looking at news items I've already seen, and then doing the refresh thing and, <laughs> and thinking about other things that I wanted to be doing or could be doing. And right. that got to the point where I went ahead and bought the pa a Pavlock, at, which is the wristband that shocks you. And I just let myself feel sort of the little, <laughs> oh, he's holding one up now. I got one too. Got one too. Where, <laughs> I, yeah, I just like allowed myself to feel that just sort of a sense of anxiety that, that yeah. we feel like, oh, we're missing out on something and going ahead and shocking myself. And it, and it went away. Huh. And I, you know, as much as I wanted to stop using Facebook, I needed that. I needed that help. Um, Are you still using Facebook more than you'd like, or you I? I was like cold turkey for a month or so on the timeline, and so now I've gradually gotten. It. And the beauty of it is that when you do that, when you stop looking at the timeline, then whatever's at the top of the timeline is actually something that you care about. Yeah. Um, so I've been dabbling in looking at a couple things in the timeline, maybe liking things and uh commenting on something that's in, in, important and i have caught yeah. myself a couple times with that anxiety of not of, of, of looking at it when i don't want to yeah. Um, yeah so so interesting you mentioned that so i use uh, a chrome extension called facebook eradicator no sorry mm -hmm. newsfeed eradicator for facebook that's the name of the chrome extension which uh replaces the newsfeed with a quote again mm -hmm. an example of technology a new technology fixing the bad aspects of an old technology uh, I use the Freedom app uh, on my computer. Every it's programmed every day from 7 a.m. to uh, I think it's 10. No, sorry, 11 a.m. Uh, I can't access the internet. Uh, no, sorry, I can't access certain websites on the internet. Uh, and so, like this, these are two great examples. And then, of course, the Pavlock, which you mentioned, these are all great examples of technology fixing the bads of a different technology. And I think that's exactly what we're going to see. I, I call this attention retention devices. And it turns out there's, like, there's a big industry developing here, a lot of these companies coming out of Silicon Valley, that are attempting to fix the bad aspects of these other technologies. I mean, I don't know why everyone doesn't install uh, you know, different technologies to, keep, to protect them from having their attention uh, usurped by other people. You should be in control of, of what you click on and what, where you go. You know, we should all install ad blockers. I'm a big fan of ad blockers. I think we should turn off notifications on our cell phones that don't serve us. We, we shouldn't be triggered on the app maker's schedule. We should be triggered on our schedule and when these apps serve us. Um, and that's where I think some of this education comes in, that there just hasn't been the time for people to realize uh, how to use other technologies to fix the bad aspects of these previous technologies, but that's coming. I think that's you know that's that's part of the changes we're going to see over the next few years. I mean, I, this is one of the things that 
I'm wondering if it if it's if it's going to come. And we can actually, I feel like maybe we we might want to talk for a moment before we get into that about the smoking comparison because I'm sure that that probably not more than not any probably more than a few listeners balked at that comparison. Um, mm. You know, is is using technologies like this like smoking in any way is it like smoking in any way well i i think they're you know it's 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 fair and unfair in a way because um uh there's a few things that i think common wisdom say about addiction that's that are wrong uh and we've had a few studies now prove this that uh addiction is more than the product that that the 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 myth perpetuated actually since the nixon administration was that Drugs have these chemical hooks that uh, as soon as you ingest these, these, uh, these drugs, you're going to instantly become an addict, right? You remember those commercials from the 1980s that there's, you know, they show the picture of a rat in a cage and, uh, you know, there's one substance that uh, a rat will have again and again until it dies, and that's cocaine. And that just ain't true. Same with heroin, right? You know, most healthy adults can inject heroin, nothing will happen to them. In fact, uh, it, it's, uh, it's called morphine, right? If you break your arm and you're in severe pain, you get a shot of pure heroin. That's better if, than street if quality. I can just, if I can just add, I wonder if you maybe came across any of the rat studies where, rat they, put, where they put rats in, in like a community where they had right. social connections and such and found, oh, they don't, uh, coke themselves to death when they have right. other options. Is that what you're exactly. referring to? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So the rat park studies where it turns out that Rats don't need cocaine when they have social interaction, other stimuli. And so, you know, you can, that, that a human being can be in a situation where they change their psychographic profile based on their circumstances. And there's always this deep-seated pain for addiction. And, that, and, and so it's not the substance. It's the combination of the substance and the person. Uh, and just, you know, we eat food every day. It doesn't mean you're going to be a food addict. People have sex all the time, but that doesn't mean that everyone's going to become a sex addict. Same way with heroin and, and the products we use. So it's ridiculous to think that Facebook and email and these technologies are, you know, going to addict everyone, although there will be some people who are addicted. And that's what, you know, that's what we talked about earlier, that I think that there's a protected class of people who deserve, uh, who deserve, you know, uh, extra help. Uh, but again, for most people, I think it's 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 uh, uh, the, the it's addiction of all sorts is actually very very rare. So it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't worry you at all that there's a product that you use that you have to um, make your own modifications to in order to have the behavior that you would prefer to have in the case of Facebook and the feed at eradicator. No, because I I want the benefits without the cost. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I think that's that's part of you know consuming a product and making it better for you. It's it's called modifying, <laughs> and uh, I don't think there's anything. You know, I, I have no ethical qualms with turning off ads, right? Blocking ads, go for it. I do it, and I, I think it's totally fine to do. Uh, I have no love lost for advertisers who want to show me ads that distract me. Why why shouldn't I turn those off? And, and, you know, okay, that's a whole nother argument about the public, the poor publishers, et cetera. But I don't think we want to go down that path. Well, I mean, I would I would love to eventually talk about the the economics of this, because I think that that's very critical to this. However, um, I don't know if we've totally exhausted the, everything that I'd like to cover with the smoking issue or or with the ad- issue of addiction in general. Um, if you think about Rat Park and having the, the social connection connections and such. 
Yeah. Um, again, this is another chicken and egg or, or co- correlation is not causation thing, but I believe you and I both have read the book Loneliness by uh, the University of Chicago researcher John Cassiopo about uh, loneliness in society and and the types of behavior that it uh, encourages or lack of lack of social connection, I think, is, is maybe a, a good way to, to think about it. If our listeners were to imagine a world where people misinterpreted neutral social expressions as uh, threatening, or if they had a, a cynical worldview, or if they were even more likely to anthropomorphize their pets, then that is, that, that's the behavior of uh, a person who is high on loneliness. And I think it's easy to see the parallels in, on the internet now. Is, does that mean that, oh, there's more of that going on on the internet than there is in everyday society? Um, I would posit that there's, there is more because uh, a lonely person might, or socially disconnected person might uh, move to technologies such as these to uh, make them feel less disconnected and mm-hmm. that would work in a, a cycle. So yeah. I, I see that as like, if that is true, if technology is causing any of this, or even if technology isn't, Let's go with if technology is is causing causing these sort of things. That would be a bit of a, a secondhand smoke thing. And I can, um, this is something that I sense. Sorry, well, I'll, I'll let you go ahead. I'm not, I'm not yeah. going to let you get away with saying that the technology is causing it. I think okay. it's affluence that is causing it. I think mm. it's social mobility that's causing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know the whole uh, since Robert Putnam wrote Bowling Alone. I think the phenomenon that you're seeing, and I think it it you know we've seen a lot of research since, is that you know people are increasingly lonely. But I don't put the blame at technology's uh, door. Uh, I think quite the opposite. I think the, the reason that these technologies, that these social networks are so popular is because of a pre-existing rise in loneliness that comes from social mobility. The reason we're more lonely is because we don't stay in one place anymore, mm-hmm. right? You, you, we're, I mean, your path or my path, right? I grew up in Orlando, went to school in Atlanta, got my first job in New York, went to Palo Alto, and now I'm in San Francisco. How can you develop a community of people who, who are your, 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 who care for you, who, uh, who, who are critical to your, your emotional well-being when we move around so much? Right. That's the real problem. And mm-hmm. technology has now helped us somewhat, not enough, clearly not enough, uh, has somewhat allowed us to, to remedy that. So I think that, that uh, you know, social networks in particular are the salve for the deeper issue of uh, loneliness that comes from more social mobility and the rise of secularism. I think the fact that people go to, uh, to organize, are, are going to less civic organizations, less uh, religious institutions than they used to, and this is an age-old trend, this is way before Facebook, um, that trend, and, and I'm part of this trend too. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not against secularism. I, I don't attend any uh, organized religious institution. Um, but I, I, I have, recognizing that that's the problem, uh, I have tried to figure out ways to recreate what I think religion used to give us in that there is something very powerful around having a small community of people who care about you and who intimately know you. Uh, and so I call it the kibbutz. And so I, I meet with my friend. I've written about this before. I think you read the article around how I meet with these, this small group of, of, of four couples 
uh, twice a month, and our kids play together, and we have these adult conversations uh, to try and recreate kind of like a secular uh, religion in a way, like a, a prayer group in a way, but we don't pray. Um, because I think that's more the, the, the problem that we're facing. And so I think technology is the salve, not the, the problem. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're creating rituals, uh, social rituals. I know I, I do that with when well, I'm, I'm living in Colombia right now. A lot of my friends I talk to on Skype or Hangouts, and we ske- it's scheduled because it's very right. hard otherwise to, to make that happen. Um, so that's an interesting perspective about social mobility. I mean, I, I would, I feel like, and I could be wrong that technology is enabling that as well, and Perhaps, so yeah. that that might uh, cause some of the the social isolation. Just to grab a couple quotes uh, relevant to the idea of loneliness or Jan- John Cassiopo's research uh, in the from the book, twenty percent of individuals that would be sixty million people in the U.S. alone feel sufficiently isolated for it to be a major source of unhappiness in their lives. Uh, social isolation has an impact on health comparable to the effect of high blood pressure lack of exercise, obesity, or smoking. So mm-hmm. yeah, if, that's a serious problem. Yeah, it's a serious problem. I, we don't know exactly why. Uh, I believe John Cassiopo has posited that technology could be associated with it. I don't know. I should try to have him on the podcast sometime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that'd be interesting. Yeah. But I, I mean, I guess like, I, I feel like it is a little bit like uh, secondhand smoke in a way because um, I mean, imagine if you're like you're saying you're sitting at a table with somebody. If you're sitting at a table with somebody who's smoking, right. that's pretty uh, undesirable, <laughs> right? It, and today we the social norm is you say, "Hey, what are you doing? You, you know, you can't you can't do that here." And I I think uh, that's going to be the case too with technology. So the advice I gave in my article, by the way, I'm not sure if you you got a chance to see it or maybe your your listeners haven't got a chance to see it. But the advice is to you know call out people in a a polite way by involving them in the conversation. So th- this works like a charm, right? So when I see someone using their cell phone, uh, they're, they're, and they're, oftentimes it's an innocent thing, right? They're, they get a little bored, they want to check an email, and then you know, five minutes later they're still you know, playing around on Facebook or something. And that's when I'll say, hey, you know, what do you think about this topic? Uh, and if it's really an emergency, if it's something that they really need to be on the phone for, they'll say, oh, I'm so sorry, I, I need to do something. And, but we all know, right? It's just like we know chocolate cake is bad for us. Nobody's claiming chocolate cake is a health food. We also know that it's, it's kind of rude to use your cell phone at the table. And so vast majority of people will, will know that they've been called out and you know, put, put the phone away. And I think uh, we're, we're already seeing this in Silicon Valley. I think we're already seeing the social norm of you know, don't, don't, don't be a, a, a jerk and, and use your phone where it's not uh, appropriate. We even have a term for it. It's called fubbing. Uh, phone snubbing is now called fubbing. So people even say, you know, don't fub me, put your phone away. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. This is, yeah. this is news to me because I'm at, I haven't been to Silicon Valley for quite a while now. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole new term for it. Well, I, I admire that you, uh, have a way of calling people out. I know I haven't really gotten into that yet, I, but I, I have noticed even just putting the phone on the table is face down, tacky, fa- even, <laughs> even face down. I don't know. I like to have it I don't even like to put it in my pocket anymore. I prefer to yeah. put it in a bag or something, something like that. So, near, we're running out of time right now. What do you say we go ahead and wrap up this conversation and put it out there and see if anybody has anything to share and, and we can maybe have another conversation at some other time? I would love to uh, talk about the economics of things. I think that's a, a really important side to this. 
and then maybe a little bit more of ways that people can combat digital distraction in their own lives. How does that sound? I'd, I'd love to. That sounds great. Looking forward to it. All right. Great. So there you have it. I hope Nir and I do get a chance to have another conversation. As I mentioned a number of times uh, during the conversation, I'd like to talk more about the economics of digital distraction, whether or not we as individuals have the agency to choose how much we engage with technology. There's no doubt that companies are incentivized to distract us. Notice that Nir mentioned using ad blockers or plugins that modify Facebook. And this is the perfect example that the economics are broken. I do use ad blockers and a newsfeed blocking plugin myself, but I'm aware that if everyone did so, there may not be any content to read or any newsfeed to block. So if Facebook were to charge for their service, and if we ignore the fact that so few people would pay for it, that it would kill the network effect, thus rendering it totally useless, in some fantasy world where they do charge for it successfully, it would be a completely different service. Right now, it's designed to get you to spend as much time as possible on the service. And instead, it would be designed for you to feel that it was valuable. Notice these are not the same thing. Now, no doubt you've seen incendiary and inaccurate articles shared on Facebook by your friends. And as much as you try to unfollow those people or tell Facebook you don't like the article, they just still keep showing up. And that's because these articles are designed to elicit rage and indignation and other ugly emotions because those are the emotions that get people to engage and to share and to spend time. So now imagine you were paying to feel that way. You would view it completely differently. Think about movies. When was the last time you left a movie feeling enraged and indignant? Now, you you might feel those emotions during the course of a movie. Maybe there's a, a villain or something like that. But at some point, there's going to be a resolution of some kind. Hollywood knows what they need to do to make you feel like you spent your money well on that movie ticket. Now, there was an article I saw recently that estimated that if Facebook were able to successfully charge their users $1.50 a month, they would make more revenue than they do now. Now, there's all sorts of problems with that in reality, but consider that just for a moment. Would it be worth $1.50 a month to engage with your friends, to be able to organize events and groups and whatever other great products that could be built under this new economic paradigm? Would, would that look like a good investment compared to the other expenses that you incur to maintain relationships? Plane tickets, greeting cards, gifts, overpriced cocktails and dinners. I personally, I certainly think so. Now, most people are resistant to the idea of paying for Facebook. In fact, I ran a quick poll on Twitter recently and 90% of people said no way they would not pay for Facebook. They're not interested in paying for Facebook. Now, I think it's hard for people to imagine just how different a product Facebook would be if we were paying for it. That would fundamentally change every decision made in the company, right down to the product designers. Take the most useful components of Facebook as an example, events and groups. Have you ever tried to plan a party and then you just want to only invite the friends who live in the city that you live in? 
you know, if you have a thousand friends from all over the world, you end up scrolling through all of them, and inevitably you forget to invite a few people. And of course, most people don't do that. They just invite everyone, which is why you have piles of totally irrelevant event invitations for events that are on other hemispheres or across the country, things that you cannot go to. And groups. Facebook is full of groups, and many of those groups even charge an admission. I know. I I have a group for my D4H video community. It's on a Facebook group, but the group's application is not very good. Even the most basic forum software is better than Facebook groups. But Facebook has the users already there, so it's just easier to organize your group there. So if Facebook were really making revenue off of these products, these useful products, they would be better products. These products would serve you better if you were paying for them. The fact that this is an insane proposition is really the big economic mystery that I'm trying to untangle in my own mind right now. So that's something that would be good to hash out with Nier, should we talk again. And I don't think that simply use ad blockers is a sustainable solution to the problem. Uh, I mean, one thing that I'm, I am doing is I am starting to try to pay for information backing um, podcasters on Patreon. Uh, I, I may open up an account myself at some point. I recently you know, subscribed to The New Yorker because they have quality information. Trying to kind of flip that own economic equation in my own mind and experimenting with that. Now, I also think that the topic of social isolation is a big one, and we touched on that a bit. And it's true, uh, as Nir said, that technologies do help us connect. But in the economic equation, the companies really aren't that well incentivized to facilitate that connection and to make it to make it good. If if an isolated person person is driven to use a social technology, but that technology isn't truly designed with the intention of reducing that person's isolation. And that isolation can indeed be exploited to increase the time they spend on that platform and to make more ad revenue, then that's that's not good. That is broken economics. So those are my short or maybe long afterthoughts. Hopefully, Nir and I will get a chance to talk about those things. Um, and maybe I, I might even bring in some other people at some point to talk about this. And I, I think... Uh, anyway, Nir and I both have tactics uh, that can be used to fight back against digital distraction that we might be able to share should we talk again. So how about you? What do you think? Let us know in the comments. Go to cadavy.net slash podcast to find the show notes. And let's extend the discussion right over there. Before I go, I got to ask. Do you like books? If you do, I'd love to send you my book recommendations. About 90% of them will be nonfiction on subjects spanning from biographies to neuroscience. Just go to academy.net slash reading, sign up, and you'll get my first set of recommendations right away. You'll be supporting the show if you buy any of those books through the links in the email. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for this show is CNU, performed by The Album Leaf, courtesy of Sub Pop Records. Love Your Work is a production of Academy Inc.